Hey, it's The Distraction. I'm David Roth. Drew is on vacation. He's tan as a nut, body surfing, swimming with and speaking to dolphins. Uh, so it's just me. Um, oh, and there's other people. Sorry, there's other people on the podcast as well. Tom Lay, uh, the editor-in-chief of Defector.com, is co-hosting with me. Uh, Hello. Hi. How's it, go- how's it going, man? Everything all right? Yeah, everything's everything's good. I'm um, excited to make my return to the podcast, do my annual appearance where you replace Drew with two of the most taciturn people you can think of. Yeah, that's <laughs> what it's about. People, we get letters, uh, you know, emails, physical letters, uh, too much talking on the podcast, people say. Yeah. We need more Could space. Quiet it down once a year, please. Let it let it breathe. Can you give this podcast some sort of powerful barbiturate? And uh, <laughs> the answer is yes, we're doing it. Uh, Lindsay Adler of the Wall Street Journal is here to administer the chill pill to the podcast. Hi, Lindsay. How, how are you? Hi, guys. I'm good. Good. Nice I pause there. I don't, right there catching the vibe. I don't know that... I was a little bit caught off guard by the word chill. <laughs> yeah, that's not the right word for any of us, I guess. But we do speak slowly sometimes, or I speak yeah. very fast, okay. but uh, in a way that conveys, I think, that I would rather not be speaking at all. Yeah. And I think that that's, uh, okay. that's kind of the secret of it. Uh, so I'm glad that you are are all here. Um, we can begin the podcast whenever you'd like. Is everybody okay with doing mm-hmm. that? Great. Okay, cool. Uh Eric's going to count us down from five, and then we're going to all start recording. Just kidding. We've been recording the whole time. Uh, So we're going to talk about baseball because it's August, and there's not a lot of other sports that I know about that we can talk about. Uh, But I wanted to start with a non-baseball topic. It's extremely hot and extremely humid, and you are both dog owners. And I always feel Mm -hmm. kind of sorry for dogs, less sorry for dog owners, but sorry for both during the summertime because dogs, you know, are hot as hell during this period. Uh, so with respect to your dog's respective rights to privacy, uh, how are how are your dogs holding up? Uh, they're doing okay. My dog is fine. Um, I appreciate your concern for, for dogs, though, as they get hot in the summer, because it's true. Those guys get hot and they pant a lot and you feel bad for them. But um, my dog in particular is is built for this shit. She's, I would say that she might even be built different um, because... <laughs> <laughs> image of your dog that has stuck in my head the most is just her digging a hole and then just lowering her tummy into it so, sitting yeah. there with a satisfied look on her face which is like the that's thing. the move that's that's august she's she's very adept at uh making herself um little pits that she cools down in so she she spent the first six years of her life just like living in a dirt lot out in the sun and you gotta you gotta come up with some moves to deal with that so she spends most of the days uh in the summer we have we don't really have any shade in our yard, but we have a couple like fairly leafy and large bushes. So she'll just kind of get herself under the bush and dig a little pit where to get down to some mud, put that belly on there. And then she's cool for like four hours just laying in a pit. So uh yeah, I feel bad for the other dogs that um don't have these sort of tactics in their toolbox. Uh, but you know, Tilly's different. So she's doing okay. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. I would say Fisher is decidedly not built for this. <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't know what he's built for, but it's not this. Um, he's doing okay. We've, you know, we've got one of those little portable water bottles. So when we go to the park or whatever, he can, you know, drink an absurd amount of water uh, while sitting outside in like a, you know, seventy-two degree day. 
Uh, it's also pretty funny because when it's really humid, his butt hair gets kind of frizzy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like his fur, actually, he does actually get affected by the humidity. Uh, the big issue is that he really hates rain and thunderstorms, and it's been raining and thunderstorming a lot. And he gets really scared and just wants to cling to me. And there is absolutely, I'm sorry to say, nothing worse than a fluffy crying dog trying to sit on top sit on top of you during an 85 degree uh thunderstorm so um it's not it's, it's not great I, I feel bad uh it's like it physically pains me to touch him when my hands are sweaty like it's just <laughs> so gross uh and so he's a little bit attention deprived he's been playing with his lamb chop toys a lot as supplement for his now emotionally distant mother uh and when it cools down i will enjoy his company again i always feel really bad for people who have the uh the like rainstorm freak dogs because it is just like Mm -hmm. there's just nothing you can do about it like they just freak out for hours and uh yeah i always my mom has one of those and she's always like really upset about it i'm like i don't know tilly just was sleeping last night sorry Uh, makes me feel worse yeah that's the part again of the if i'm being like somebody who feels bad for dog owners because i would be a dog owner if i didn't have allergies and also like a wife who is for sure never going to touch poop even um (laughs) like no matter how much she loves a pet that it's that you see it sometimes at dog runs and it's always very funny and very poignant to me like you can't reason with a dog like you can't be like it's thunder it's not gonna it's just a sound because they don't, their brains are, it's like just a plum in there. It's just a, a regular plum that you could get from the supermarket or green market. Yeah. And you're not going to get thoughts into it because they don't, that's not how it works. And so you yeah. just have to to deal with them being upset to the you know extent that you can. I've, I've really actually thought about that concept a lot. Um, I like to tell Fisher during a thunderstorm, you know, okay, the historical evidence says that we're, when we're with family, per se, you've been afraid of this <laughs> many times, and I can't recall anything bad happening to you. And, you know, I've really kind of been in my um, body keeps the score thinking about my own nervous system era. And so when Fisher's freaking out about the thunderstorm, I'm like, okay, he's having a nervous system reaction. How can I teach him? Oh, you freaked out this time, but see, nothing went wrong. Maybe you can have less of a, you know, physiological reaction next time if we just keep having these thunderstorms and you keep being safe and he just keeps freaking out. I really need him to read the book and start doing some regulation <laughs> tactics uh, because telling him when we're with family, we're safe. When you're with me, a I'm showing you, I'm not afraid of thunder. I'm not afraid of rain. If this were a threat, don't you think that I would be visibly demonstrating anxiety? Instead, all I'm demonstrating is an annoyance of you drooling on my face. So maybe, maybe tell your body, it doesn't have to be afraid. You are, you are not in the wild. You are, you are a 20 pound cotton ball. In a one Whatever the opposite in of a wolf that lives outside is, that's what you are. Like, although yeah. tough, this yeah. is the thing with dogs. 
He's going to remember. He knows where the vent that blows hot air up his ass is like that (laughs) is like he'll never forget it. But the the challenge is getting him to remember anything uh, beyond that, I'd imagine. We're trying we're trying the calm app together, you know, like I could really (laughs) use some meditation practices for dogs that are like woof, woof, woof instead of do a body scan. Anyway, said his intention is not. I mean, good luck, obviously. <laughs> but they, there's a bit that I have. This is like one of the fully replaced the title of that book in my head. I think it was Sabrina's mom uh, referred to that book as uh, "The Body Holds the Grudge," <laughs> which it's like it's just completely like when I see it in a, in a bookstore, I'm like, oh yeah, this the body holds the grudge. That's supposed to be very good. Which, is, uh, but yeah, we don't need to. Talk about that any longer. I'm glad your your dogs are okay when the weather is not so bad. Lindsay, mm-hmm. you have something to add to that. Yeah, comment. I did. Really, the best moment of my summer was uh, going to Boy Genius at Forest Hills, looking over, and there was a person reading "The Body Keeps the Score" while waiting for Boy Genius to go on, <laughs> and it was it was so amazing. It was yeah. it was just so nice to see, you know, such like a, you know, narratively consistent uh, experience in the wild. I was so. going to say, like, self-care doesn't stop. Like, it's just like you can you practice it right up until the band that you administer as self-care to yourself starts playing. But yeah, you have to. It's no plays off in this game. It was That's, it was really exciting. I took a I took a really bad zoomed in photo because I wanted to protect his privacy, but also the cover of the book is distinct enough that when I just posted the extremely like blurry photo on Instagram, <laughs> all of my other like, you know, internal family systems girlies were like, "Oh my gosh, that's so funny." And I was like, "This is this is just like the perfect thing I have witnessed a person reading body keeps score at a boy genius show and now i can just sail into the sunset uh unhappily (laughs) amazing i I don't talk about a show that i was unable to go to but uh lindsay did go to uh i had covid for a whole week and i was in this room where i'm recording this now and i seldom left it because i didn't want to make my wife sick we succeeded and she never got it i am now healthy but part of uh one of the things that i missed beyond being able to go outside and get a sandwich, which is, as everybody knows, my greatest pleasure in life. Uh, so I had tickets for uh, Pool Kids and Mountain Goats, Pier 17, Lower Manhattan. I was unable to go, although I was able to um, sell those tickets. So the first real sign that I've seen that like Blue Sky might make it is that I posted there, does anyone want these tickets? And someone emailed me and it worked. But uh, Pool Kids, a, a band that I know less well than the Mountain Goats, also like... Uh, I missed at that show, like the new wrinkle in what has been one of my favorite stories of this year in terms of just a baseball cultural overlap, in this case, between Pool Kids and Pete Alonzo. I learned after this fact that Lindsay basically made this whole shit happen. Can you just like walk people through the uh, Pool Kids, Pete Alonzo affair? And, you know, you don't need to talk too much about your role in it if you don't want to. But I hope you will lay out what you did to facilitate all this because it's it's magical to me. I wouldn't say I necessarily facilitated it, but I uh, I had my own curiosity. So basically, Pool Kids is this you know emo contemporary emo band. I think they're out of Chicago now, but the singers Florida, from Tampa, yeah, Florida, yeah. So they opened for Pup at Pier Seventeen. 
a couple of months ago. Their 2022 self-titled album is really good. Uh, so I was like, cool. I like this band. And then one day from the band's Twitter account, there was a tweet that was like, hey, you know, just want to let you know we went to high school or, you know, I went to high school with Pete Alonzo. He sat in front of me. He was like the nicest man. Like he would always get nervous when doing presentations and whatnot. And I just thought everybody should know that this like big, tough jock is actually like a really sweet guy. And I was like, oh, wow, that is extremely specific that this the po- the very po- small. Yeah. Also mentioned that he got really red during his presentations. I just yeah. wanted to get that mm-hmm. out there. Please go back to your story. It's just important that that yeah. don't be in the in the record. It was it was amazing to me that this, you know, pretty small, I would say up and coming band had a Pete Alonso crossover. Uh, and a lot of people sent it to me and they were like, this seems like your thing. And I was like, yes, it is definitely my thing. So when I was at city field a couple weeks later, uh, I went over to Pete and I was like, Hey, did you see this tweet? Uh, it was was like pretty nice. And he was like, no, I hadn't seen this tweet. And I was like, wow, this really tells you about the Brooklyn bubble I live in because literally everyone I know has been talking about this tweet and it did not make its way to you. Literally everyone was like, wow, I love uh, wearing a Mets hat to a Jeff Rosenstock show. This is extremely my shit. And yeah, Pete Alonzo was like, what? Guilty as charged here. This is, it, yeah. I've had that experience too in terms of like talking to people about it as if it's normal. Like talking about it yeah. like it's the Barbie movie. I'm like, yeah, you just yeah. know what I'm talking about. Absolutely yeah, the, the pool kid, the pool kids Pete tweet is really, you know, aside from seeing someone read the body keeps a score to boy genius show <laughs> is really one of the most exciting things in my summer. Uh, wow, your summer of kismet continues. To yeah. Forward. Yeah. So I was like, oh, here's the tweet. You know, it was really nice. And he was like, oh, that's so cool. Can you like click on their photo? Yeah. He, he immediately was like, oh, that's Christine. She, you know, I went to high school with her. And I was like, yes, it is Christine. Uh, and I was like, well, you know, they're, they're playing a show in Brooklyn at the Sultan Room next month. I don't, I haven't checked the Mets schedule, but blah, blah, blah. And he was like, oh, that's really cool. Like, what kind of music do they play? And I was like, you know, emo. <laughs> and he goes, oh, that's perfect. And I was like, Pete, is that perfect? Are you one of us? And he goes, bro. I lived at Warped Tour in 2011. And I was like, all right, dog. And he was like, A Day to Remember is one of my favorite bands. And I was like, okay, okay. So the next day I'm in the clubhouse again and he comes over to me and goes, yo, I listen to Pool Kids. They sound like early Paramore. And I was like, I was like, that's exactly what Haley Williams from Paramore said. And uh, he... I, I said something along the lines of like, I really like the album because like a lot of, you know, trendy music right now is like sad girl music, uh, which I know is a controversial labeling anyway, but I was like, I like that pool kids is sort of like one for the angry girls. And he goes, yeah, like Phoebe Bridgers. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, exactly. And he was like, he was like, you know, sometimes you just got to get that angry feeling out. And I was like, it's, it's so true, Pete. <laughs> and so he told me that he had reached out to them 
uh, but had to work at the same time. They would be playing at this small venue in Bushwick. And I was like, ah, well, you know, like, I'll be there. I'll, you know, tell her you say hi or whatever. And so went to this very small show uh, at the Sultan Room in Brooklyn. Really great venue. Really great show. And Christine from Pool Kids was like, I just want everyone here to know that, like, Pete Alonzo is like a really wonderful person. He's like a wonderful himbo who's just like so well-meaning. And I just think it's really important that everyone knows that like, he's a really good guy. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. Uh, And so then the next week they were opening for Mount Goats. And so I too turned to Blue Sky and I said, does anyone have a ticket they want to give me? Because I am actually not a mountain goats fan but i was like it would be cool to stop by this really cool venue on my way back from the bronx uh checking with cool kids again for the second time in a week and then ride the ferry home which is exactly what i did she told the story again she was like you know are there any mets fans here uh you know and because it was a mountain goats show a lot of people went bananas and she was like pete alonzo is really great like i really literally wonderful. would have been there if i wasn't sick like this is again just i'm in this picture and i don't like it in a lot of ways but it is everyone scary. there was you yeah <laughs> like everyone there was you and like i've been to a lot of shows where it's like haha everyone here is raw but like really everyone <laughs> oh, there was raw I had that with my I had a Yola Tango show where my sister texted me and she's like, I'm trying to find you and every single person looks like you. And I was like, great bit. I don't know. Like, I'm over here. I'm near one of the monitors. Like, Thanks I, for fucking owning me via text at a show. Person I've known literally your entire life. I really enjoyed uh, in that story. I thought there was a nice moment of Pete really making a fusion out of like uh, Jock Himbo and like email fan when he said, bro, I lived at Warped Tour. That just seems like such a like only like a a, a jock athlete who was at R- Warped Tour would say, "I lived at Warped Tour, bro." At <laughs> like, that's not that's not a phrase that would enter my head unless I was a professional baseball player. Just the idea of Pete Alonso like just saying just saying the word "bro" to you and you being like, "Uh huh, you're, you're talking to me. I'm the bro here. Go ahead, go on." Like it's just kind of yeah. uh, pleasing as well. I mean. Every conversation I have with Pete just lifts my spirits because he has such a way of saying such profound things in such simple language, like, bro, I lived at Warped Tour in 2011. Uh, when we had a long conversation in spring training about, you know, sort of the, the mental side of hitting, uh, he said, something along the lines of like, I'm best when I'm brain dead. Sometimes you'll see me on second base and I have no idea how I got there. And I'm like, that actually is way more descriptive than what a lot of these like, you know, brainiac hitters try to say, you know, this sensation and you look around and you're trying to gauge the ball and Pete's just like, whoa, how did I wind up here? And at the end of that conversation, he said, got it over and he goes, you can print this. Hitting is both a science and an art. <laughs> and I was like, you're so right. Uh, and so the next it's day, also I funny that him, for him to say that after he's like, no thoughts, I can't have <laughs> thoughts. <laughs> like, and just yeah. trying to give you a like, bumper like, sticker. It's, it's a very simply expressed profundity. Is that how you say that word? Yeah. 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 
I mean, I'm not usually the Pete's, guy to ask about pronunciation, but yes, that sounds right to me. Pete's profundity. Uh, <laughs> it's 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 delivered in a very special in a very special way, in a way that like really sort of like clicks every time when he's like, "Bro, I lived at Warp Tour." I'm like, "Oh, I feel like I just learned." 2000 words about you in the span of one sentence so um that's the thing um he's a really good quote i remember one of my favorite quotes of the i think it was this season not last season was there was some scuffle or whatever that he was involved in and after the game he was pretty pissed off and he just kept saying i'm a big strong guy because he was trying to describe how he like wasn't trying to hurt anyone and he's like look I'm a big, strong guy. Okay. I know that I'm big and that I'm strong, but like, I was not being a big, strong guy in that situation. <laughs> he just like kept using that phrase and it, it just killed me because he was so mad while he was saying it. Yeah. This is where I think the, the initial pool kids bit where they were like, he would get up in front of the class and get real nervous and red. And I was like, that's yes, that's right. Like, I think yeah. that that like also unlocked an understanding of Pete Alonso that I hadn't had before. Like, cause he's, yes, he's a big, strong guy. Uh, none would argue with that. And I've loved watching him with the Mets. I mean, I think he's like one of the real positive guys that has come up through that organization in my lifetime. There's just also an element of him that seems a little bit like a child, like not in a dumb way, just in a sort of like a guileless way that I, um, I don't know. I, I like seeing that in ball players. I think. Yeah, I think just, it's, there's like something to, it's always, it's always like, I'm always charmed by athletes who seem to possess that little extra bit of like self-awareness that like is usually, I, I guess, sort of hard to find against people who are pro athletes just because they've always like succeeded and, and been so, you know, they don't have to think about themselves much just because their life has kind of been on a steady climb. But yeah, I think it's, I don't know, just, just Pete being able to accurately describe himself as a big, strong guy. And sometimes as an empty headed slugger is like that. Those are the kind of things I'm always charmed by when athletes uh, are like able to, sort of just think about themselves a little bit like that. Yeah. I This is, for me, the enduring... Until he, like, does something cool in the postseason with the Mets, which, you know, we can talk about that after the break. <laughs> uh, but the, the enduring image of him, for me, is always at the home run derby, where he'll just... He'll be, you know, hitting homers. But then also the other thing with the home run derby that I've always sort of enjoyed more than I feel comfortable with is that every ball that doesn't go over the fence is like absolutely smoked at a child that's standing in the outfield. Because they, <laughs> it's just like VIPs kids out there trying to field like hot shots from the best home run hitters in the sport. And he's had some where it's like a ball hits a kid and the kid is clearly very upset because it just got hit with a Pete Alonso batted ball. And he's not only is he not seeing it, you can see on his face that the only thing that's going on in there is just the like, ah, <laughs> from like immigrant song. It's just that looping over and over. And I love that shit. Like, I think that that's, you know, I aspire to it, honestly, like just as to get that singular in your uh, focus is like to, uh, it's both a science and an art, I guess. Yeah, it's a good way to live. Yep. All right. We'll talk actual baseball after the break, but we should probably take a break. Uh, Drew is not here to read it, but I will uh, read that this week's episode is brought to you by Malaise. From the people that brought you Boss Baby Family Business, Barry Weiss is the free press and the concept of surprise billing for medical care. Malaise has critics raving. They've called it an uncanny replication, not so much of HGTV's broader vibe, but more the knowledge of the impact that HGTV has had on the culture as a whole. And also a meticulous rendering of how you feel in an airport. Malaise is in theaters now. 
and also on every streaming service and available wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back in just a moment. You may have heard of the puzzle and game publisher Ravensburger. Since 1883, they've been making high-quality board games and jigsaw puzzles, but they also produce much more than that. The Distraction is sponsored today by Cree Art by Ravensburger, the ultimate painting-by-number experience. You'll find everything you need to start your artistic journey today with Ravensburger's carefully curated painting-by-number kits. Whether you're a seasoned artist seeking a new challenge or a beginner eager to explore the world of painting, Ravensburger's kits cater to all skill levels and ages. You can embrace the therapeutic benefits of painting by number as you melt away the stresses of daily life and find solace in the act of creation without facing the pressure of the blank canvas. Easily explore Ravensburger's wide selection of enchanting designs on their website, on Amazon, or in your local art supply store. Their designs range from majestic landscapes to adorable animals with everything in between. Let your imagination run wild and embrace the joy of painting with Cree Art by Robinsberger. Shop Cree Art today. We are back. Uh, it's the distraction. I'm, I'm David Roth. We did this already. Tom Lay's here. Lindsay Adler's here. We're going to actually talk about baseball now instead of uh, dogs and bands and which venues in Bushwick it would be funniest for Pete Alonso to go to. Uh, I'm aware that we're talking about baseball in August. It's kind of a fucked up thing to do for being honest with ourselves. Uh, um, what would you say, we, before we get to like nitty gritty stuff, what is the the right amount to care about baseball in August? I feel like I'm under my usual standard for that, but I also feel like I'm the closest I've ever been to a healthy engagement with the sport. Uh, at the very least in many years. Some of that is because uh, I've just put my Mets shit on energy saver mode. But like, where's where's the right headspace for August, would you say, baseball-wise? I, I like August baseball more now with the new wildcard spots because yeah. August is the prime month to uh, get these clowns out of here because you, you always have like... Oh, there's the all star break. Like, who's going to be competing? Who's selling? Who's buying? And like, there's always some, you know. Yeah. The like uh, others uh, in the hunt thing has a there's team this constellation like of three and 58 right, on it. Of, yeah. of teams that you know are clowns, clown teams who at the trade deadline are like, well, we might we might make a push for the wild card. And then my favorite time of year is like the, the first two weeks of August where uh, one or two or three of them just totally eat shit. And it's like, well, Okay, so much for that. Thanks for trying. Uh, I feel bad for these teams, you know, but it is it does add a little bit of uh, juice to what you know is historically sort of a dead month. Um, you know, you get to see uh, who is who is moved from clown watch to clown status, and then you kind of don't have to think about them anymore. Um, and that's been happening this month to to, to big big effect to many yeah. teams. Not a lot of teams like playing better, but definitely a lot of teams that are like the Angels are just sort of doing the like I'm a head out meme. Like, oh yeah, right now, which is they are killing me. Like yeah. yeah, I I I watched that uh, doubleheader against Detroit when Otani was like turned into God for two games, and I was like, they're gonna fucking do it. Like, oh man, they're gonna fucking do it. Like they they made these trades, this is great, and then they immediately went uh, I think two and nine. And Otani cried in the dugout <laughs> and they blew two ninth inning leads. Uh, last night's was really bad. So yeah, they gave up eight uh, runs in the ninth inning, I believe it was, or six. They gave up six. Yeah. They went into the ninth, ahead three, two gave up, 
a game I guess the game winning double because Randall Grichik uh, fell over trying to catch a ball in the outfield and uh, their closer can't do anything. And uh, yeah, I I mean, it's not that like I enjoy that, that seeing that I I want Otani to make the playoffs, but at least like it adds some, some zip to this part of the season because you get to just see the best laid plans and, and ambitions um, go into a toilet, which is, you know, there's drama in that. Yes. I mean, it, it was really interesting to me to see the Angels be like, you know what, we're just going to go for it. Uh, and actually, here's a fun fact. Uh, I first learned about Shohei Otani from Tom Lay back when oh. his name was spelled O-T-A-N-I. Yeah, uh, yeah that's true. Yeah. So <laughs> I, like I can I can real... confirm that. Yeah, I can confirm that Lay has the true Otani cred and has been waiting for his moment, moment of glory for a very long time. Um, yeah, that Mariners series was really just kind of amazing. Um, I mean, the, the entire American league wildcard chase is like extremely funny. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's a low speed chase. The national league one is yeah. that it's basically, it's like the, if you imagine the white Bronco scenario, but everyone's driving <laughs> a golf cart, it's just I mean, not the ideal. Matchup, like the matchup to get is to face the twins or whoever else may win the American league central. Right. Yeah. Because, because of the way that the division races are shaking out, some of those early rounds are going to be bloodbaths between heavyweights while someone gets to face the AL central team, uh, which talking about clowns. Yes. It's (laughs) sort of like, I, I, I think at a point when the league is de-emphasizing division play, you know, interdivision games have dropped from 19 to 14. Every time I turn on the TV, there's some, there's some weird matchup. Like, honestly, any time an American League team is playing the Diamondbacks, it's weird mm-hmm, to me. Yeah. It's really weird to me. Like We're like 20 years so, into this shit, and I still feel mm-hmm. that way, too. Like, when the Mets play the yeah. Tigers, I'm like, oh, what is this? They're like a fucking yeah. split squad game? Ugh, get this away from me. Like The, the Mets and Royals? Yeah. The Mets and Royals? Like, why is that such a weird matchup? I mean, eventually, I understand it. But it is weird to me that when MLB is sort of embracing the big, you know, unwinding of division importance and sort of league-based importance, uh, the AL Central can still get one of the top-seeded teams, and it doesn't just work like like basketball postseason seeding. So I'm, like, really interested to see how that race shakes out because it's just, it's just very bizarre. The AL Central rules to me like it is the whole like everything that is annoying about major league baseball at this moment in one division like beyond the obviously like the depressing teams are depressing and stuff but we were talking you know like as a team about like which teams we were glad sort of went for it and which ones didn't and like i wrote a little bit about that but the (laughs) the fact that no team in the american league central tried to get better that like the big move there is the twins claiming ramon loriano off waivers yesterday like that is the move that they made to add a guy everything else was either neutral or it was the Guardians who were a half game out of first place actively rowing backwards. I, this is the part where, I mean, obviously, like the deadline is, it's been passed. It'll be further passed by the time that this episode goes up. But like, to me, there's, you know, there's teams that did too much. There's teams that did too little or whatever. I'm 
to me, like the American League Central had this is this third category of teams that have like just a fucking infuriating deadline where they do stuff and you can tell that they are convinced that they killed it or at the very least for making responsible choices. And they just took a team that was like 53 and 51 and left it entirely alone. I don't like what team do you think had the most infuriating of of these deadlines, like out of just for any of the reasons that you might be infuriated by it? I don't know if this is proximity bias or what, but I mean, the Yankees trade deadline was fucking good answer. <laughs> as- astonishing. Uh, and, you know, I, I covered the Yankees closely for five years. Like, I've watched the way that front office has approached trade deadlines. And this was a little bit surprising to me, but also, I don't, I understand how they wound up on the fence. Um, I, you know, fortunately, it was not my job to write about it at length this year, like it would have been in years past, but so sort of doing some of the mental exercises was a a little bit different from my friends who are still on the beat, who had really well-developed thoughts. And I was like, I don't know, would you trade Glaber? Like, does trading Glaber make you better in the long term? Is there a player out there who you could acquire? You know, like there's a lot of talk about them, like acquiring Cody Bellinger, which great story this year, but like is acquiring Cody Bellinger playing at a good clip actually going to fix what's wrong with the Yankees. And so I understood how they wound up at that conclusion where they were like, let's get a middle reliever and do nothing else. But it was really fascinating to be sitting in the press box at Yankee Stadium as the new 6 p.m. deadline passed and be like, is it over? So just Keenan Middleton, huh? That's the whole thing. I feel terrible is for it? him, too. It's a good pitcher, but it's like the sort of thing where he has to spend the rest of this season being gestured towards by Brian Cash and being like, what? No, there's a guy. We got a new guy. It's this guy. Like the guy that pitches the I mean, sixth inning sometimes. Yeah, I mean, we've seen that, you know, like the Jordan Montgomery Harrison Bader trade is, you know, probably better than it looked like it was at the time. But also, there these, especially when it comes to the Yankees, you know, oh, they went and got Isaiah Kiner Falefa instead of getting, you know, Trevor Story, who hasn't played for the Red Sox this year anyway. But like, it is interesting to see the way that these players who do get acquired or get moved, their sort of like status within the fan base changes really quickly. Uh, You know, there was, there was a lot of, I think, apathy toward Jordan Montgomery. And then as soon as he got traded, it was like, how could you trade away Jordan Montgomery? And so Monty, we loved Monty. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's been funny to see it happen every year. Uh, I just don't think, Keenan Middleton is going to inspire the same type of, I guess, tribalism that, you know, Montgomery, Harrison Bader, uh, the year they didn't go after Marcus Stroman, you know, that those things have inspired. Yeah, I always feel bad for uh, like arrivals at the trade deadline in baseball specifically, because it is like 
I feel like there is sort of a mismatch between like what like, oh, they made a trade that means they're going for it means and like what the actual contributions of the guys coming in are going to be. Like aside from the time like CC Sabathia got traded at the deadline, like you're just like it doesn't matter who you're trading for. They aren't single handedly going to do that much. And so like the signal is like much louder than like what what will actually happen. And I was feeling that way about the Angels guys because they went and got like CJ Crone and Randall Grichik and like the fact that they traded for guys was like everyone's so excited and then it's like okay but this is just the Dick Brown and Randall Green right like, like you're familiar with the guys they got right like, yeah and then very... like poor Lucas Giolito you know like he's got some name recognition so you know you're like oh shit they got Lucas Giolito that's great and he goes out there his first start gets his brains bashed in and it's just like what that's what's what I've been doing like yeah, that's, I'm Lucas right. Giolito that's what I do now um yeah. and so I do always feel bad like Unless you're, yeah, like a future Hall of Famer being acquired at the deadline, which, you know, happens very, very rarely. Uh, you're kind of in a little bit of a no-win no situation. Like, you know, if the team kicks on and makes the playoffs, you get to feel good and feel like you're a big part of that. But if they don't, you're just kind of like dog meat to everybody and everyone's just pissed off that they traded two prospects for, you know, Ronaldo Lopez, who's yeah. just being Ronaldo Lopez. The Angels are especially a good example of that, too, because it's like they did like go for it by the standards of like they acquired like four or five guys. Yeah, if you get four guys, you're going for it. It's just like, but what like, does that actually mean? Those guys are going to be on the team next year. Like it's yeah. all people that are on these deals that are like expiring. Or they're going to be free agents and stuff. So it's the sort of thing where like you're going for it in such a way that will also permit you to be the A's next year, which I think <laughs> the Angels probably kind of will. Yeah. And that's the, a really hard thing to feel good about, like as a fan or to sort of like, it, I mean, definitely the point of like bringing someone in is to give yourself more of a chance, but there isn't enough season left. And especially with like relief pitchers, this was the part I've, uh, like sort of late in the game, become a big Shintaro Fujinami guy. I'm just fascinated yeah, by he's him. He's your new guy. Yeah, and that was Patrick Dubuque wrote at Baseball Prospectus that like whatever it is the Orioles are able to figure out to make Fujinami stop, just like start hitting guys and not stop until he's removed. They have like 20 innings in which to do that. That like yeah. that's how many innings he will pitch for the Orioles before his contract expires at the end of the season. So there's only so much that you could really ask a team to do the Orioles are the team that I was most frustrated by at the deadline just because yeah, I wanted have, to ask you about that. You're, you're pretty steamed at the O's, right? I'm steamed at the O's because they're small time and I don't like that. Like I think yeah. the whole stuff with the like suspending their play-by-play announcer for admitting that the Rays exist or whatever it was that he got in trouble for is just, yeah, I, I have enjoyed the most like dulcet toned MLB play-by-play guys all <laughs> taking time to be like, you know, just in perfect John Miller baritone to be like, that's bullshit during the live podcast. <laughs> But the, it's funny too because you could tell they all had like planned that planned it out. Yeah. Like I listened to the Jason Benetti one, and he just starts talking about the Rays for no reason and like what the White Sox record is against them. And then like you're right, he just like kicks the vocal cords into like their best possible register. Yeah. He's like, "Hope I don't get suspended for that." Yeah. It's like oh, oh, or velvet. Yeah, it's <laughs> it is really like it's also good to know that all those guys are like in a DM together, like yeah. just presumably. <laughs> going back and forth but the o's at this point they're like i mean they're disgusting but like they're good as a team they're very good and Mm -hmm. like there's only like nothing is promised right like you don't the yankees are not going to take every year at the deadline off the red sox are not going to take every year at the deadline off like this is probably as good a look at the world series even with as good as the orioles young players are and as long as they're going to be with the orioles you can't 
I mean, last year, people criticized them for not pushing for the wild card. The team wasn't good yet. They hadn't called a lot of the guys up. I didn't like it, but I understand it. In this case, they have developed more young hitters than they can fit on their roster and they could possibly use. And that could be turned into a player, not just like a guy that you have for the, you know, whatever, the 20 innings that Shintaro Fujinami gives you or however many starts Eduardo Rodriguez would have made down the stretch. It could be turned into a real player that is like, a number one starter or a number two starter on the next good Orioles team. And they just fucking didn't. Yeah. They just got Flaherty was like the only guy they traded for. Right. Yep. And they managed to, you know, they gave up guys that it's like the Cardinals are glad to have them. The Orioles absolutely will not miss them. It was like their seventh best infield prospect. Yeah. But that is like, it's fine in the sense that like they've got Jack Flaherty throwing 97 miles an hour somehow, like instantly. But the idea that, you can just afford to that like whatever prospects you have are worth more than the present or that whatever like plan you have is worth more than a chance to win a world series. To me, it just feels like you've lost the plot if that's the choice you've made because like, yeah, particularly in that division too. Like I think, I think that's like the biggest piece of context is like, you know, like you said, the Yankees can take a deadline off because they're like, motherfucker, we're the Yankees. Like whatever we've, we've won, a million world series and we'll just we'll just do it again at some point you know when we're ready uh but yeah like if you're in the al east like you're kind of in hell for your entire existence because yeah. you have to put up with the yankees and the red sox and the blue jays and the rays like it sucks so if you've got any any year any moment any like few months where you're like oh shit we could actually win this fucking division like i think you've got to try for it um i mean i you know i know the Orioles are doing all sort of you know, trust the process shit, but like, just, just win the AL East one time. That would be sweet. Like, just do it. Wouldn't that be fun? The process for, if not, you know, like, but I don't know. Are we, Lindsay, are we being too mean to Mike Elias? I know you and he are close personal friends. (laughs) No, I mean, I just, it's something I think about a lot. Like the job of a GM is really difficult because especially in an era when you know, projections can be quantified, whatnot, the way they are. I just think the whole idea of current versus future value seems really hard to parse. Like, I'm really glad that it's not my job to determine, you know, what the Orioles should give up to go for it now versus not sacrificing the long term. I mean, I just... I mean, the industry runs on risk mitigation, now, which I think is harmful to the entertainment uh, product. And, you know, the, the thing I just, you know, I mean, obviously the Padres have sort of gone for it in kind of kooky ways and whatnot, but really the, you know, I've said this for years and years and years, and I'm sorry for anyone who has to hear me say this for the 15th time, but like, I really feel like the last great, you know, ballsy trade was. Theo Epstein trading, you know, Glaber Torres for Earl Chapman to try to go forward in the 2016 World Series. Like, you know, Eraldis didn't necessarily uh, deliver himself in glory. On, yeah, <laughs> yeah, on that stage. But you know, I mean, Theo Theo said, pick one, Glaber Torres or Aloy Jimenez, and like, those are the prospects at the time that you want to retain. And they just went for it. And I just think it's front offices, 
from, you know, from an ownership perspective, from a, you know, financial management perspective, like they're just not incentivized to go for it. And it's like a weird thing I think about with the wild card because it it kind of goes both ways. You can be like, well, if you're in, you have a chance. You know, I mean, we've seen wild card teams do wild things, uh, yeah. but also when so there there's like an element where the like crapshoot aspect of the postseason can be can be an incentive but i can also see where it's disincentive like if you feel that you really go for it and you build the best team that you can giving up you know prospects that you have already figured into your you know internal production and also financial flexibility calculations uh and then you know that you could be paired up with the team from the al central and still lose the series uh to a team that didn't give up you know anything at the trade deadline like i do think that these are hard questions uh and it it makes it, again it just makes me really glad it's not my job to do sort of this like logic philosophical puzzle of current performance versus future value because it's just it's so extreme right now I do feel like we've learned at the, by now that like if if the you know wild card expansion was ever actually meant to be about you know encouraging teams to be more aggressive and go for it like I think we can kind of say safely like that's not really what's happened because of like what you're talking about Adler where like it's sort of been in all certain seasons and scenarios had the opposite effect where you're like well we can just sort of sit on our hands and we still might make it anyway. So like, what's the point? And I do think that like my, that's sort of my general aversion to like playoff expansion and cross all sports and like devaluation of the regular season is that like, I don't think it ever really accomplishes that goal, which it, I mean, I think the truth of it is the goal isn't to like make more teams try and make more competitive. They just want more playoff games on TV that they can right. sell. But like, you know, the, the way they dress it up is like, well, this will get your, this will convince your, you know, team to go for it at the deadline, you know, more than they normally would. And I, I just like, I would prefer it to be like just divisions. And because then it's at least like, you don't have to, as a fan, torture yourself with these questions like that you were raising at or like, how do you weigh this shit up? Like, oh God, I don't know. And then like, you just get mad in one direction or the other and you can't really figure out why. Um, and I think it, yeah, it hasn't changed the behavior of how teams operate in a, in a way that is like any better for fans, I don't think. Right. Like, I think it introduces new variables without actually making it more fun. That, like, mm -hmm. I mean, because the Chapman thing, mm -hmm. I think, is a really good example in that it's like, yes, he like had to like hit the Jerry Seinfeld face when he gave up a home run to Rajay Davis in the World <laughs> Series. That's tough. You know, like, he's going to do that every now and then. But you can also like, Looking back at it, you're like, well, this is a trade you make to win a World Series for a franchise that hasn't won a World Series in more than 100 years. And they did it. It worked. Like, so that's, you can just give that an A and move on to grading the next one. But when you're dealing with like this now, like sort of spectrum of possibility and, you know, risk versus reward, like it makes it so that I think it makes teams less inclined in a lot of ways to go for it because you're sort of like, well, what are you actually? playing for are you playing for the right to play three games on the road as a wild card team and get like rinsed out of this because mm -hmm. that's like that's what the mets spent a bunch of money on last year 
you know, like it sucked. It was like, they still got to make the playoffs and stuff like that. But it is one of those deals where if you give, I think this is like, you know, a bigger problem that baseball has too. That like, if you afford teams an opportunity to come up with new excuses to take half measures, then like, they're going to do that. Like, it's not necessarily like all of them are like anxious to, jump all the way in with both feet like that really hasn't been the case in baseball for i mean since before the like tensions really started ratcheting up on the last collective bargaining agreement this is not where front office thinking is now i don't know how you fix it exactly obviously they've like (laughs) they got the extra games they wanted like the extra revenue is there so it might be that this isn't a problem to anyone but people that care about it but i do feel like it it's complicated things without necessarily uh like making it more gratifying to care about yeah i mean there's no there's no like perfect way to set up a league that will be like every fan's always just like yes yeah. this is how Unless it should you be like mandate that every team has to try which yeah. is like has never well, been true I mean, in baseball also it is like what are you going to do i think the closest you get to that is like a relegation system which you know is obviously not really tenable in, in a baseball in america but like uh but and even that like relegation can cause its own problems and stresses where like you know in in english soccer like a team will fire their manager like five times in the season because they're just like we have to not get relegated so like that's also kind of like not that fun that like oh this guy got a job you're like excited to see what he's going to do with the team and then he's gone in two weeks so like it's it's never going to be perfect but i do think that like it's annoying when they make a tweak in some direction and they're like, it's going to give you this result. that will make it more fun. And then it just like the opposite happens over the next 15 years. And you're like, well, all right. And then it's just more like, it, I think that's the thing I, I'm trying to get at. It's like, it just makes it more confusing as a fan of like, what should my team actually be doing? Like, I don't fucking know. Um, and it's just cleaner if it's like, okay, they suck or like, okay, they're good and they should be doing this. But now it's like, they suck and they should also be trying but they're good and maybe they shouldn't be trying. So it's, it's tough. That's sort of where I landed with the Mets. I don't want to talk about them too much, but it was like, I watched them every night. They're not, they weren't getting better. Like, so I wasn't mad about them necessarily selling off. Cause it's like, they weren't, it wasn't like there was a playoff push in them. Like they all play like they have sinus headaches every single day. (laughs) I don't know what that's about, but that is just like how they are. So that's a problem to fix in the off season. And the rest of it is just kind of what it is. We should get to the, the, back end of the podcast goofy stuff i do have one more question though that i wanted to uh run by Lindsay. you can you do not need to answer this naming names or anything like that but there's a daily news story yesterday that was like it was kind of like one of those stories that the athletic runs every like three months about zach granke and what a like weird guy he is this mm-hmm. one was about tommy canely of the yankees um it mentioned that he makes a big deal out of shaving his entire body every time he gives up a run and when his teammates have asked him about it, uh, like Michael King is like, he said, he says, this is punishment. This is punishment. You want to be hairy. And uh, <laughs> Michael King was sort of like, all right, man, if that's if that's what you think. Uh, so that's weird to me a little bit, uh, just as a guy that um, has never been so mad at myself that I decided to shave my own body to punish mm-hmm. myself. Like, Lindsay, based on your experience, and you don't need to name names or talk about the relative smoothness or hairiness of anybody involved. How weird is the average ball player at the major league level? Like, like on a scale of one to ten, and any examples illustrative of that uh, would be appreciated. Relievers are are really really weird. I mean, yeah. it's it's like a psychologically untenable job, basically. I mean, 
Tommy's definitely a weird guy. Uh, <laughs> even within the reliever class, he's, he's, he's just got a really big personality and like, you know, I saw that a lot of people were like, whoa, this is crazy. I was like, yeah, I don't know. That kind of like, it, it wasn't really shocking to me. You know, like relievers do really weird things. Uh, like think about their, I was talking about this with the reliever the other day who said that um, he, in the off season, he has to basically recalibrate how he speaks to people because he's so used to being weird throughout the baseball season. <laughs> Uh, he was like, it's Anybody legitimately that's hard. Can relate to that? Like, yeah, that's like me when I log off yeah. of work and have to talk to my real friends. And I'm yeah, like, kids saying like, we're so crabbed or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, I run into this issue too. You know, he was like, think about it. Like, you spend the whole season. You have to like, you know, relievers cannot, you know, be you know involved in every pitch every year or every game. Otherwise they would just go crazy. So they spend a lot of time in the bullpen, just shooting the shit, talking about the strangest things. I mean, like, honestly, one day in the bullpen would be like psychologically revelatory for me. (laughs) And they do it 162 times and they have to, you know, think about the, think about the adrenaline not to go Whole body keeps the score again, but the the adrenaline, the the whole like physical component to the emotions that they're trying to process, they're just weird. They spend a lot of time out there being weird. You know, this player was saying that it's like really difficult when the off season comes and um, someone says something to him in earnest and isn't ball busting, and he's like, "Whoa, like why are you being so rude?" Which Honestly, I've run into as well, you know, like I, I mean, like being insane is the common language of a bullpen and it just, you, the, the combination of Tommy Canely having a weird ritual versus Michael King, who is the most like just enjoyable person who is able who is definitely able to see the weirdness in it but also just appreciate it it was it was a really good combination like nobody else in that bullpen would have been as funny talking about it as michael king because he's not somebody who would ever do it but even mm-hmm. though he's one of the most quote normal relievers i know he also thinks like a lunatic because that's what relievers do uh, so I, I enjoyed that. I mean, I don't know, frankly, I don't really want to know what superstitious rituals most of these guys have. Um, but like at the end of the day, that seems like a kind of, uh, time intensive routine, but like, I'm sure it's not the weirdest one out there. Oh yeah. That's, that's a good insight. I never had before considered like the, the, lore that gets constructed in a bullpen over the course of a season but that that makes a ton of sense that you would just like become a real weird guy out there and yeah i mean that's that's like relatable i you know i think roth you and me probably both have experienced like the weird sort of constructed uh bits that happen at work and then you know i go out to a concert with friends and i have to 
stop myself from saying no bless yous for Giacomo. Yeah. <laughs> because nobody's going to know what that means. Yeah. <laughs> so having like a literal, like a glossary that you have to give to new employees at your company that's like, yeah. here's what everybody is talking about all the yeah. time. Like, I know it seems like there's a gas leak that's being distributed <laughs> around 22 different households, but this is just how people are now. Yeah. Yeah. That, I, that's always been something that I've like admired about, although it's, it's projection. Obviously now I, I sort of know this more. <laughs> from what Lindsay said that I think I always understood it that like guys like uh like Rich Hill or Max Scherzer that are insane like they're basically like the way that like Arnold Schwarzenegger is in Predator like they're like that when they're <laughs> pitching but then they seem like normal guys when they're not and I've always enjoyed the idea that like you just wake up when it's your turn and you don't blink for 24 consecutive hours. There's all these like the footage of like Max Scherzer on the mound being like, you motherfucker, you're mine. Like, I'm gonna fucking eat you up. I'm gonna eat you up like a little candy cane. And like, and, but then like when you see him, he's intense when he's not pitching, but he's not like that. Like he's yeah. not super aggro um, and insane, but yeah, I guess it's like whatever it takes to get to that headspace is whatever it takes to get to that headspace. I don't yeah, know probably, either. I, mean, I can afford to goof around with my friends in Slack. I would say that goofs are like, much more important in the bullpen because otherwise you're just yes. stressing the entire time because you're like, yeah. when am I going to yes. get called in? Am I going to get called in? So you need to like come up with some game where you take turns, you know, like hitting each other in the balls or whatever, just yeah. so that like you're not thinking about how you're going to blow the game in, you know, an hour. Yep. I mean, I think what's interesting to me is like, I think when I started covering baseball with the BBWA card, I was like, oh, you know, like how does like an intense guy like, you know, Max Scherzer or Justin Berlander, like how do they turn off that bulldog mentality? And now I think I've become a little bit more interested in the guys who present as normal, who become extremely weird on the mound. And, and Michael King is a really good example of that. Like Michael King is the most just, I mean, you could just have a conversation with him about anything. And there are times where I have gone to him and I've been like, okay, so like when there's a bench clearing brawl and you have to like run out of the bullpen, like you seem like a person who has a good head on your shoulders. Like, what do you think about that? And he's like, well, you just got to go, you know, or it's like, you know, the, the moments where these like naturally unintense guys show their competitive intensity are actually way funnier to me because I'm like, you're you're like less insane than I am and <laughs> you're still doing the insane guy ball player thing yeah, when like, you're on like the mound and it, it that's it, in there somewhere yeah it 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 really is a skill um a lot of us have to be either insane or normal all the time and a lot of relievers have an ability to flip the switch and be like goofy and weird and really like personally enjoyable and then turn into just like uh an unevolved lunatic on the mound and get strikeouts and it's like it's it's i i really enjoy seeing it and so so yeah a reliever shaving his entire body to sort of like i, I don't know if this talk this is tommy's idea but like spiritually cleanse himself of the mm. experience of giving up a run yeah, it's like a classic red you dragon know? type situation. Yeah, you know, it, it, makes, it makes sense to me. It makes sense to me, Sometimes which I think got to tie your homie to an office chair. And you just have to become something different. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yes. It's like, do you see? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, that's the reliever thing. They're all 
nuts. They, Many of them are, are very Tom wonderful. From Manhunter, which is <laughs> <laughs> really... but like think about think about how brain broken you have to be to be like a high leverage reliever. Oh yeah, like, it's awful. Yeah, like again. The human mind is not made to deal with that type of thing. And these people, they go out and they get lit up on Sunday night baseball and they blow the game and then they just stroll into the clubhouse the next day. And while they're not being honest that it doesn't affect them, like they just get back at like these are insane things to do as a human. And so they have to be completely nuts. So I think if if Tommy shaving his body gives him some sort of you know, framework or confidence, like that's like, honestly, probably in my opinion, probably one of the, you know, least harmful ways to deal with that anxiety. So I'm like, sure, whatever, man. Shout out to Smooth Tommy. We we respect Smooth Tommy on this podcast. Uh, Good luck to you. We are, we're running out of, do you guys have time to do like one fun bag question? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. We'll do. All right. So supposed to do the guy of the week, do it. Uh, do an express guy uh, this uh, time for the guy of the week. I never get to read this part. Every week we remember an athlete of your, not a Hall of Famer necessarily, but just a guy who makes you think, hey, I remember that guy. The guy that I picked out of respect for Lindsay's uh, Bay Area roots is Kirk Reeder. Do either of you remember Kirk Reeder in any uh, meaningful way? I got nothing on that guy. N- nothing in my mind palace about real, him. Real gangly ass <laughs> guy. Terrible. You got anything, Lindsay? No. Did I go too far back? I have no idea how old anybody is. You went a li- you went a little bit too far back, but I mean that was just such a good guy era for the Giants. Explain his values to us. No. Explain his he values. Like, Plays skinny Russ Ortiz, like right. you can imagine that. Yeah, or long Russ Ortiz, really more. Uh, you can't hurt you. Long Russ Ortiz is not real. <laughs> one can't hurt you. But the he uh, he was a pitcher, pitched for the Expos, pitched for the Giants, like kind of one of those guys that good teams have, where he was like the fourth starter on some really good teams um, and is beloved way out of proportion to the actual value that he added because he was mm. always there. There's a fun uh, Grant Brisby story at The Athletic about, I guess Reader was really good at like stealing shit from the clubhouse, like just like stuff that he thought was cool or like getting people to sign things. So he's got like a Quonset hut on his property that's got like a pair of sliding pads that Willie McCovey autographed and stuff like just things he was constantly mousing out of the clubhouse or asking people for, uh, which seems like a good way to be a big leaguer to me to just like constantly be uh, taking stuff from work. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I think, um, I think it's nice to honor like a really like classic fourth starter. Yeah. Uh, that was, I just sort of, you know, if you'd you know, like to name a fourth starter that you have loved, it doesn't have to be Kirk Reader. If you'd <laughs> like to do that, you're well, I mean, I would say maybe not the perfect comp, but like, I would say the most fourth starter guy in baseball right now is Jordan Wiles. And yeah. uh, I think, I think there's a real appreciation for guys who do that. I mean, Kirk Reader never made an all-star game. He pitched nearly 2,000 innings with a 4.27 ERA. That's uh, right there. And that's cool. That's cool. I mean, that's there. there, yeah. is, there is a real nobility in that, in, <laughs> in, in that type of performance, I think. Persistent Breath. cromulence. You, maybe you'll can help me remember this. Who is the guy who, like, he retired, I want to say, like, four or five years ago? Who, he retired with, like, 
a totally even win loss record as a starter and like like an exactly like four point two. Do you know what I'm thinking it's of? Brandon McCarthy. Brandon yeah, McCarthy. yeah, 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 yeah. Brandon, it was, like point, he was four point two zero ERA. Yeah, and yeah. Sixty nine wins or something yeah. like. Yes, that. Yeah. it was like basically like he like it's not annoying when he does it, but he like Elon'd the shit. Like he Elon'd his <laughs> yeah. entire career and then was just sort of like, all right, that's it. Yeah. He's a scout now. I think he's like, nice. if he needed to work in the game, but he seemed like a, like a pretty cool guy even before he managed to retire with a pristine I think, pot number ERA. And I think my, my most four starter guy would be uh Jeff Supan. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, also a guy mm-hmm. that like got to win some world series while remaining Jeff Supan the entire mm-hmm. time. Good immaculate. That rocks. He had a, he had a, I believe had a Royals phase, which is very valuable for that game. All right. We'll do one, uh, fun bad question, but, uh, I appreciate y'all taking the extra time to talk about fourth starters with me. You know how important that is. Mm -hmm. Both worked with me. It's questions from Scott. I was lucky enough to take an eight month career break last summer and fall. I indulged in my hobbies and found new ones, spent time with friends and loved ones. And enjoyed life more than I ever have. I've been back to work for almost two months and I can feel everything fading away. I think not working broke my brain and life will never be as good as it was in those months. Do you have any advice? How do I stop this? I'm asking because like I would legitimately yeah, like to know. If my you response to that, I believe, would be uh uh brother, you you can't get that back. <laughs> that is yep, part I'm sorry. Of- this is just what having a job is and it sucks. And uh yeah, I think it that's just gone now. Sorry. <laughs> it's tough. Lindsay, do you have any counter to that? I sure do not. I mean I don't think this is the healthiest habit, but I think the way I counteract that is by being a sort of inconsequential scoundrel. Uh you just you just do sort of like things that are not actually harmful, but you know, are just bad decisions. Mm. You know, it's like, should I go to the bodega at 2 30 AM to get those zaps voodoo chips? And I'm like, yeah, this is living. Yep. I'm 33 years old and I have a very corporate job and I'm still going and buying potato chips at 2 AM. And I'm like, yeah, yeah I still got it, man. Yeah. Like, you're, yeah, my body's going to feel yeah, my body's going to feel yeah. awful from the sodium consumption in the morning. And you know what? That's a badge of honor. I'm about to roll into my corporate office feeling like crap because I ate food <laughs> chips. And so that's my other advice would be if you tried grifting instead of working, yeah. uh, I feel like that's that's the true balance. But in terms of inconsequential scoundrelism, that's a little bit harder to pull yeah. off. But to me, grifting always seems stressful. Like you're constantly having yeah. to do like close up magic. I'm just thinking about the movie where you're swapping yeah. the 20 for the five when you're asking somebody to make change. Yeah. But that, uh, yes, there is an element of it gets harder. I guess you'd have to say that the body holds the grudge in this instance <laughs> as you get so older, that there is an element of like, cause I do that all the time. Like that is the thing that I, you know, where it's like, I work when I'm supposed to work, but then like I have little Davy treats for when I'm mm-hmm. been good or bad or when I really need them. It's just that most of those, as you get older, start to make you feel bad. They're like, mm-hmm. what the, mm-hmm. like, what my wife has called revenge bedtime. That is apparently like a clinical <laughs> name to, for it, where you like stay up mm-hmm. till one thirty watching a movie you've seen before because you're like, I deserve to watch Shutter Island for a third time, a movie <laughs> that I think it's a solid B, yeah. not remotely a B. Plus. <laughs> But I deserve this. Like I've worked, you know, not hard, but I did work all day. And like then I'm just tired for two days. Like when I was uh 
when I actually had COVID, I spent a whole day definitely having COVID. And I just thought I was tired because I filed the morning blog at 2.30 in the morning. <laughs> and I was just sort of like, well, this you can't do that anymore. You are 45 years old. And then it turns out like I had the novel coronavirus. Like, yeah. like that, Those two experiences of like not getting enough sleep and literally having COVID are effectively indistinguishable by the time you get to your mid-40s. Uh, yeah. So my advice to Scott is to Definitely, like, life's for the living. Like, carve that shit out where you can, but um, be aware <laughs> that it gets harder. And just, or make, you know, do it in a responsible way. Well, to bring it full circle, I would say that my attendance at this Pool Kids Mountain Goats show was a form of that. I was like, well, I'm not going to invest money in this. I do not have the physical or emotional energy to stand through an entire show. I think it'd be really funny to say, I'm going to stop by a concert on my way home. And so I procured a free ticket. I went to a concert for 45 minutes. I saw the opener and then I was on the ferry before the mountain goats took the stage. And I was like, yeah, I just went to a mountain goat show and left before they played because that's my tolerance. And also that's a funny thing to say. And I was <laughs> home by like 8 PM doing nothing in bed. And I was like, I can survive the weekend now, but also I did something cool. Yeah, I yeah. blew off a good band, you know, eat my shorts. That's, so like the, that's the equivalent of walking away from an explosion in an action movie, but you're just on a very slow moving boat. That's John Darnielle tunes his guitar. <laughs> I mean, there's worse ways to be in your thirties than that. Um, thank you it's both true. very much. That'll be our show for this week. Tom, Lindsay, thank you. Uh, Lindsay, you want to tell people where they can read your shit? Uh, you can buy a newspaper called the Wall Street Journal. Uh, oh, they're the very good. Section. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you can find me on wsj.com slash sports or at your local Florida emo. So I suppose. Yeah. Making mischief for uh, beloved Mets by telling them what emo <laughs> bands are saying about them online. <laughs> all right. Uh, thank you all very much. Uh, that is our show. Eric Silver is our producer. Brandon Krugel is our editor. Theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. Ads and production services are by multitude. You can subscribe to Defector.com right now. That was my attempt at doing the Drew voice. Just go to Defector.com and hit the subscribe button. It's as simple as that. We have crossword so, puzzle now. We've we have a crossword, crossword puzzle, puzzle now. Uh, my brother-in-law, Ben Tausig, helped us make a crossword puzzle. Thank you, Ben. Uh, you can email us at distraction at Defector.com, or you can call us at 909-726-3720 and leave a message. That is 909-PANERA with one E, zero uh thank you very much for being with us uh drew will be back next week have a good one bye bye